Genesis chapter 3. If you're using one of the pew Bibles, that's page 3. Genesis 3, we're going to study verses 20 through 24 today. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, follow along as I read verses 20 through 24. This is the Word of God. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. May God give us ears to hear his word. The other day I was standing in my kitchen and my wife asked me to bring her some ibuprofen. Uh, She wasn't feeling well at the time and I certainly didn't mind serving her, so I began my search. Uh, First I went up to the bathroom where we typically keep such things and I looked in all the drawers, looked in the cabinets, but no ibuprofen. Then I went into our bedroom and I checked the nightstands, checked the dresser there, looking around, no ibuprofen there. I went down into our basement, thinking that perhaps I had taken it down there when I had a headache or something like that. But after looking all around on my desk and whatnot, no ibuprofen in the basement. So I returned to the kitchen, which is where I was when I began this quest. And just when I was about to tell my wife that I could not find the ibuprofen, what do you think I saw sitting right there on the counter uh, where I had been standing just a few moments earlier? It had been there all along, but I could not see it for one reason or another. You ever had an experience like that? You just can't see something that's right in front of your eyes? Whether it be the peanut butter you can't see in the pantry because it's not where it always goes. Maybe your car in the parking lot, even though you just parked it there ten minutes ago, you just can't see it. Maybe it's your child, you don't recognize them because they got a new haircut. It's very common for us to not be able to see things that are obviously right in front of us. We can be blind to things that are right there, hidden in plain sight. You ever been there? Now, interestingly, we can have this very same experience reading the Bible. We can miss the most obvious things in Scripture that are right in front of us. Maybe it's because we're reading too quickly, or maybe because it's contrary to what we always thought the passage said, or maybe we just don't have our thinking caps on, but there are many life-changing truths, precious truths in Scripture that are clearly right there in front of us, but we just can't see them for one reason or another. I believe that's the case with the passage we're going to be studying today, Genesis 3, 20 through 24. On first glance, this passage seems to be just a collection of incidental details. Adam changes his wife's name, they put on clothing, and then they leave the garden. That certainly does not seem worthy of a 45-minute sermon. And yet, I believe that if we'll slow down, if we'll meditate on these verses, if we'll see the truth that's really right there in front of us, that's been there all along, it has the ability to totally transform our lives. But for that to happen, we'll have to have God open our eyes. Now, to quickly put Genesis 3.20 and following in context, there are two big events that I remind you that took place before this that we need to remember. The first is creation. Creation. As we saw in Genesis 1 and 2, God made this entire universe and everything in it in six days by speaking the word. He simply said, let there be light, and suddenly there was light. There was water, plants, animals, birds, creeping things. And then, as the pinnacle of his creation... 
He made man. He made Adam and Eve, and he made them in his image to obey him and to reflect his glory. And God put Adam and Eve into the Garden of Eden. A beautiful, perfect garden filled with all sorts of good things. Their every need was met. And God gave them a simple command. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There were hundreds of other trees that they could eat from. Fruit trees, apparently vegetable plants. But that one tree you don't eat from it. And if you do eat from it, you'll surely die. That's the first big event we need to remember to make sense of the passage we're looking at this morning. Creation. The second big event is the fall. The fall. Though Adam and Eve were in pristine conditions, perfect conditions, with one simple command, what happened? Satan shows up, and in the form of a serpent, he tempts Eve. Eve gives in to the temptation. She eats from the forbidden fruit. Then she gives some to her husband, Adam, who had been there with her all along, and he eats. So the one very simple command that was to be obeyed under perfect conditions was disobeyed. And as we saw last week and the week before that, God was not happy with their disobedience. He was angry, very angry, and in his righteous anger, he poured out curses. Curses on the serpent, on the woman, and on Adam. And yet embedded in these curses was a promise of grace. And since this promise of grace is so important, and it will be important again for this morning's study, look at Genesis 3.15. To the serpent, God says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, for the sake of time, I won't repeat everything that I said last week on this verse. I'd encourage you, if you weren't here, to listen to the sermon, watch it on sermon audio. But to basically summarize what God is saying to Eve, I'm promising that one day, one of your descendants will arise, and he will decisively defeat the devil. And as I argued last week, that ultimate seed of Eve is our Lord Jesus. So remember these two big events, creation and fall. And yet intermingled in the fall is this promise of grace. Keep that in mind now as we turn to Genesis 3.20. Now, the first thing I'd like you to notice with me from these verses is the audacity of true faith. That's the big truth the Lord is teaching us in verse 20. See with me the audacity of true faith. Now look at verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, pause there. At first glance, again, this seems to be nothing more than an account of Adam changing his wife's name. But might there be more here than meets the eye? Well, consider a few things with me. First, you'll remember back in chapter 2, Adam had already given Eve a name. In chapter 2, we read this. Then Adam said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, as you clearly heard there, Adam had already given his wife a name, and it was the name Woman. And it's structured there that Woman is not just her gender, but it's supposed to be her name. She is Woman. But here, one chapter later, she gets another name, a new name, the name Eve. Now, fortunately, Moses defines this name for us. He tells us exactly what Eve means. So look at it again. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, you might not realize this because you probably never took Hebrew, but the word Eve is related to the word life giver. Eve in Hebrew is chava, life giver is chiyah. Can you hear the similarity? The reason why Eve gets the name Eve is because she's the source of life to all the people that are come, that to come after her. Uh, she is, in a sense, the great matriarch of the entire human race. Now, obviously, this verse is talking first and foremost about Eve, but I do think there's an application here that applies to all mothers. All earthly mothers. One of the greatest privileges mothers have to this very day is to bring human life into the world. 
To be, in a derivative sense, a life giver. To be a mother, it's so much higher than the way in which the world portrays it. Uh, you watch TV, you know, you watch some of these Netflix shows, and to be a mother is this, this lowly, trashy thing almost. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's what you do if you can't find anything better to do. If you know, weren't able to go to college, whatnot, uh, then just spend your day changing diapers and doing laundry. That's how our world looks at it. And yet that's the exact opposite of the way that God looks at being a mother. Think about it. To be a mother is to bring eternal souls into this world. Souls that will never come to an end. Souls that will exist for all eternity in either heaven in infinite happiness or in hell in unspeakable torment. To be a mother is to usher such a soul into this world. Just ponder this because if, if, if we meditated on this from a biblical perspective, I think it would totally transform the way that we look at motherhood. When all the celebrities are dead and gone, when all the television sets are defunct and sitting in dumpsters, when all the computers are tossed in the trash heap, when all the skyscrapers collapse into rubble, when all the big name companies are no gone, when all the mountains turn into sand, when all the stars in the universe burn out, the souls that mothers bring into this world will continue to exist somewhere. And looked at that way, being a mother is a privilege far, far greater than being even the President of the United States. It's a giver of life. Brothers and sisters, let us believe in this view of motherhood. Let us commend this view of motherhood. And let us ascribe to all mothers, our own and others, the dignity that they are due. Well, coming back here to Eve, something very important to recognize is that at this time, Adam and Eve didn't have children yet. Do you realize that? Even though he says she is the mother of all living, they don't have any kids. Cain and Abel won't come until chapter 4. So why is Adam calling his wife the mother of all living when they don't have any kids? What makes this even more curious, considering the events that have just taken place. Remember, God said to Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat from that tree, you'll surely die. What's more, Eve was the one that sort of brought Adam into sin. He was, she was the one that introduced the fruit to him. So from an earthly perspective, Adam's got every reason to despise his wife, to think of her not as the life giver, but as the death giver. Uh, not as the mother of all living, but as the one who brought the curse. Can you understand that? Really, there's only one reason why God, or pardon me, why Adam calls his wife's name Eve, and that's because he has faith in the promise of God. It's the only reason. Remember that promise, Genesis 3.15. Your offspring Eve shall bruise his head, and he shall bruise his heel. Remember that? That's the promise. And like we said last week, that promise is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus so think about this. Despite everything he sees with his eyes, despite everything he feels in his body, despite the guilt that's now on his soul, Adam is believing the promise of God. Eve will eventually have children who will have children who will have children, and one day my Redeemer, my Savior, is going to come. And to publicly testify of that faith, he changes his wife's name. Bruce Walkey helpfully writes this about this renaming. He says, Adam's naming of Eve is the beginning of hope. Adam shows his restoration to God by believing the promise that the faithful woman will bear offspring that will defeat Satan. While this story is filled with death, judgment on the serpent, painful labor, conflict of wills, a ray of hope remains in the promise that the seed of the woman, who feels enmity toward the serpent, will defeat the incarnation of evil. Now, this is so helpful because it helps us define true biblical faith, true saving faith. Everybody's got faith. Every last one of you have faith. Faith in something. Faith in someone, maybe faith in your friends, faith in the news, faith in the chair you're sitting in. We all have faith. 
But the distinguishing mark of true faith, biblical faith, faith that pleases God, is that you believe the promises of God even when there are no tangible reasons to do so. Even when there's nothing visible to do so. It's, it's an audacious thing, a, a, really a, wild, it's, it's a supernatural thing. You think about it. You believe the promise of God because the promise of God is good enough. That is true biblical faith. This is exactly why Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Or consider the audacity of Abraham's faith in Romans 4.18. In hope he believed against hope, that he should be the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Again, this is the kind of faith that pleases God, the kind of faith that unites one to Jesus and all of his benefits. You believe the promises of God even when everything that you can touch and feel and see and smell tell you otherwise. You believe the promises of God even when your sort of common sense is telling you that can't be. I realize that's audacious, but that is biblical faith. And this is why Jesus said to Thomas, this was in our scripture reading earlier, John 20, 29, Jesus said to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now let me be clear here. True faith, biblical faith, is not believing anything that you can imagine, anything that you wish. It's, it's not this sort of Pollyanna wishful thinking. Uh, or like the sort of stuff that you hear you know, on commercials, if you believe it, you can achieve it. That, that's not biblical faith at all. That's really just pagan superstition. No, biblical faith is trusting in the promises of God as revealed in Scripture, even when you don't have any tangible reason to believe them. Now, we have lots of good reasons to believe the Bible, the entire thing, to believe that the Bible is the living word of God. And if you want to ask me more about that, ask me at the door. But true faith, biblical faith, saving faith, it believes the promises of God as revealed in Scripture, even when they're contrary to everything else you see. Like Paul, you say, let God be true, though every man a liar. This, incidentally, is, one, is really the biggest difference between Christians and non-Christians. There are plenty of non-Christians who are far more moral and self-controlled than we are. Plenty of non-Christians who know the Bible far better than all of us ever will. Far, there are more Christians that are, say, better educated, uh, more generous, more politically active, more religious, more creative, more intelligent than, again, all of us are put together. But what they lack is saving faith in the premises of God. And that's why they're not right with God. I ask you, do you have this faith I'm talking about? Do you have this audacious faith that I'm describing this faith that in hope against hope believes the premises of God. Do you have that faith or am I talking a foreign language to you? You think about it, it's this faith that is what unites us as a church. What brings us together as a church is not, say, a common skin color, common political affiliation, common economic bracket, common education level, or even nationality. But what brings us together and unites us as a congregation is this common faith in the Bible in general and in Jesus in particular. And if we ever lose that, we lose the essence of the church. Additionally, this is why we gather as a church every week to build our faith, to fuel our faith. You see, gathering with others who have this kind of audacious faith, it's infectious. It's contagious. 
Your faith can be encouraged by the faith of others. So we gather with others who share our faith in the Bible so that our faith will grow. You may have heard about those celebrity Christians, quote-unquote, who fell away in recent years. This has happened more times than I wish. In the last five years, ten years, there have been several high-profile so-called Christians who totally abandoned the faith. And you, you probably know the names I'm talking about. I won't name them now. Well, interestingly, a sort of study was done into these individuals. And without exception, every single one that fell away, they had quit hanging out with Christians about six months prior to abandoning the faith. Check this out if you want to. I can, I can hopefully direct you to the sources where I found this. But almost without exception, they quit Christian fellowship about six months before they lost their faith. But you think about it, that should not surprise us at all, because, again, true faith is a contagious thing. And if you cut yourself off from other believers, don't be surprised if your faith evaporates. One more thought on this passage, and this one might surprise you. As I was reflecting on this passage and with what Adam did regarding changing Eve's name, I found it very similar to water baptism. Water baptism. Now, you might think, where in the world do you get that? There's no mention of water baptism here. We're fairly confident Adam was never baptized. There's no water anywhere in this passage. We'll see if this makes sense. The Bible clearly teaches that we will confess verbally what we believe in our hearts. This is taught over and over and over again. We will say aloud what we truly believe, truly treasure in our hearts. It's like Jesus taught us in Matthew 12. 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, that's exactly what Adam did here. Adam could have believed the promise of God, but not done anything publicly. Had he done that, we would have known if he were a believer or not. You know, he could have believed that promise in Genesis 3.15 without changing his wife's name, but then we'd be left wondering, did did Adam ever come to know the Lord? We don't know. But by changing her name, he made a verbal profession of what he believed in his heart. You follow me? Now, in this church age, that's exactly how baptism is supposed to function. A verbal profession that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and your Savior. Sure, baptism does not save you at all. There's nothing magical in the water or anything like that. And yet, like what Adam did here, it's a public statement, a public profession of what you believe in your heart. So in light of this, I ask you, my congregation, is it time for you to be baptized? Is it time for you to stand up and be counted? Maybe you've believed on Jesus for quite some time. Maybe you staked all of your hopes on Jesus for this life and the life to come years ago. But you've never gone public with your faith. You've never made it known through some sort of verbal profession what you actually believe. If so, it's time for you to publicly profess your faith in the waters of baptism. If you'd like to begin a conversation about water baptism, don't hesitate to talk to me. You can either fill out one of those blue cards and put them in the box in the back, or contact me personally, text or email or something like that. We can begin a conversation. But like Adam's renaming of Eve, in this age, water baptism is the way to tell the world that you have this audacious faith. Well, moving on, there's a second truth I'd like you to see with me in these verses. See with me second, the beginning of substitutionary sacrifice. That's in verse 21. See the beginning of substitutionary sacrifice. Now look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, again, at first glance, this just seems to be nothing more than a statement that God made for Adam and Eve new clothing. But might there be more here than meets the eye? Well, again, remember the context. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed, and that was a good thing. That was a holy thing. 
But then they sinned, they fell, and instantly they felt guilt and shame. And what did they do? They covered themselves with loincloths made out of fig leaves. Remember all of this? Now, incidentally, and this is just as an aside for you to consider on your own, I love reading old Bible commentaries. And by old, I don't mean like 1960s. I mean like 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, like the Puritans and the Reformers, some of the best commentaries I have. And I was surprised by how in those older commentaries, they often use this passage as an opportunity to condemn the sin of extravagant dress. comes up time and time and time again. It's not an application I would have thought of myself, but it was interesting. And their reasoning went this way. If clothing is a badge of our sinfulness, if clothing is sort of a sign of our rebellion, why in the world make it something to boast in? Why would we glamorize that, celebrate that? Again, not... The first application I would think of from this passage, but it is something for you to consider on your own. Well, be that as it may, consider a few details about these clo- this clothing that God provides Adam and Eve. First, you wonder, why do they even need new clothing? Weren't there fig leaf loincloths enough? Well, you don't need to be a botanist to know that leaves don't make great clothing. They wither, they dry, they crack, they crumble, and within a day or two, they're gone, fallen to pieces. They're not very durable. Additionally, verse 21, this is fascinating. It uses a specific word for a type of clothing that covered somebody from their knees all the way to their neck and then had sleeves. Check this out if you want to, but it's a specific word, almost like a a robe or a tunic that covered a lot more than just fig leaf loincloths. Dramatically greater coverage. Last detail, look at the material these clothes are made out of. They're described as garments of skins. Now, this is hugely important. First, when it says skins, it's clearly animal skins. These aren't made out of linen or cotton or, praise God, polyester, but they're clearly made out of animal skins. And when you see somebody wearing animal skins, what do you assume? You know that an animal had to die for that person to get that clothing. Now, I hate to break it to you, but if you got like a leather belt on or leather shoes, an animal died for you to, to wear that. Now, since God ceased his work of creation on day six, that means he didn't create this skin out of thin air. Undoubtedly, an animal or animals had to die for this clothing to be provided. One last little detail. That identical word for skins there is used in the Mosaic law for the animals that were killed in temple sacrifice. I don't think this is a coincidence, especially when Genesis was written to the same folks that are making sacrifices in the temple. But in Exodus 29:14, we read this. But the flesh of the bull and its skin you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is, it is a sin offering. Now, think through this with me. After Adam and Eve died, who should, or pardon me, after Adam and Eve had sinned, who should have died? Adam and Eve. Because again, God had commanded, the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. Instead, what takes place? Instead of Adam and Eve, an animal dies in their place as a substitute. Blood is shed because of their sin. They are then clothed in the skin of this animal to cover their guilt. And this is a covering not made with human hands so that no one can boast, but provided by the sheer grace of God. Does that sound a little bit like our understanding of substitutionary atonement? Listen to old Matthew Henry on this passage. He writes, these coats of skin had significance. The beasts whose skins they were must be slain, and slain before their eyes to show them what death is. That's a fascinating thought to ponder. They actually wouldn't have known what death was before this. And that they may see themselves as mortal and dying. 
The beasts were slain not for food, but for sacrifice, to illustrate the great sacrifice which would one day be offered for all. The very first thing that died was a sacrifice, Christ in illustration, who is called the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Just as an aside, and we'll explore this more next week, but I think this helps us in understanding why the Lord was so displeased with Cain's sacrifice. Uh, People read the Genesis 4 and how God was pleased with Abel but not Cain, and people wonder what was going on here. Was God just arbitrary? Not at all, because, again, I think this is where the substitutionary atonement concept begins. An animal's blood must be shed to cover our guilt and to show us our need for forgiveness. But you can't do that using cucumbers and corn, squash, beans, even if they're the best. And because Cain dishonored the sacrifice that was ultimately pointing to Jesus, that's why God was displeased with him. You follow that? Now, as I was reading this passage, I almost pictured in my mind Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 taking place. And let me read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. You can almost think of the provision of these garments in these categories. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And I don't think it's inconsequential that the Lord clothes Adam and Eve only after Adam's expression of faith. I mean, the Lord only knows what would have happened had they not believed Genesis 3.15. You know, we don't know. But once they believed, then and only then they were clothed with this new righteousness. Again, a righteousness not their own, but provided by God's grace. Now, in applying all of this to us, all of us enter life like Adam and Eve immediately after the fall. We're all guilty, all ashamed, all alienated from God. And most of us, like Adam and Eve, try to do things to cover our guilt. We make little loincloths of fig leaves. Maybe loincloths of morality, church attendance, baptism, giving to the poor, caring for the environment, giving to the Humane Association or whatever people give through these days. And those leaves, they might cover our guilt for a day or two. But then, just like Adam and Eve's silly fig leaf garments... They wither, they crack, and there seem to be nothing more than the filthy rags that they were all along. But now God is providing a new righteousness. He is offering to you a new righteousness. And it's a righteousness that does not come by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Jesus is that perfect lamb, the lamb of God, slain from before the foundation of the world. And he's offering his righteousness. He'll clothe you in his righteousness right now if you'll come to him by faith. So I ask you, have you been clothed in Jesus' righteousness? Have you believed the promise of God and received this new clothing he's offering you right now? Have you turned from all man-made efforts to cover your sins, all man-made efforts to hide your guilt and shame, and embraced the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Have you? One more thought on this. The full forgiveness, the complete atonement, the covering of righteousness that I just described, this is one of the most unique things about Christianity. And I believe that in the years to come, it will be increasingly seen as odd and really unusual in our culture. Why don't we say that? Well, I'm sure you've seen this, but every day our culture is more and more abandoning the idea of forgiveness as a concept. You do something wrong on the Internet, you're done. No second chance. We got this cancel culture, you're banned from Twitter, forever kicked off Facebook. I got a pastor friend who's been eternally kicked off Facebook. Our culture is totally eliminated, eliminating forgiveness even as a possibility. 
yesterday I was listening to this uh, weightlifting podcast and the guy was boasting about his zero strikes policy. Zero strikes. You do anything that he considers offensive, say anything that he considers offensive. You're gone. No questions asked for eternity. He won't even let you buy stuff from his store for the rest of your life. And he was talking about this as if this was a good thing that people should emulate. That's our culture. But here's the massive problem with that. Sooner or later, we will all need forgiveness. And probably sooner rather than later. Sooner or later, we'll do something, say something, post something, tweet something that will get us canceled. And before long, everybody's going to be canceled. And when that happens, the church will have a wonderful opportunity to proclaim, yes, that was sinful. Yes, you've done wrong. Certainly, you should not have done that. That was inexcusable. But here's the truth. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. In Christ Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of all of our trespasses. And in a world like ours, that will be the most wonderful, happy thing Christians have to offer. Complete forgiveness to those who are guilty and ashamed. But again, if we lose that, we lose everything. Well, one more thing I'd like you to see with me from these verses. See with me, lastly, the mercy in the believer's death. I think that's the big point of verses 22 through 24. See the mercy in the believer's death. Look at verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned everywhere to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, there's an awful lot we could say on these verses, a lot that I actually don't have time to say. There are things I wanted to say that I don't have time to say. Stuff about the Trinity, stuff about how Adam's role to work the ground is intact even after the fall, the significance of being driven out to the east of Eden. Ask me about any of that at the door if you want to talk about it. But for the sake of time, let me point out a few things. First, as you can see, because of their sin, under no circumstances may Adam and Eve now eat from the tree of life. Did you catch that? I mean, look at verse 23. Lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. I remind you that in the garden there were two special trees. There were apparently hundreds of other wonderful trees, but two special ones, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Now, Adam and Eve have eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was terrible sin, but the tree of life remains. And you'll notice the reason why they may not eat from this tree. Did you catch it? Lest they live forever. Now, this is fascinating. What this seems to mean is that even before the fall, Adam and Eve did not have everlasting life. If they had everlasting life, I mean, why bother putting this tree there? Evidently, everlasting life was in some way contingent upon their connection with the tree of life. Now, I realize this is a bit of speculation, but most theologians who have studied this deeply think that Adam and Eve were in some sort of testing period early on in the garden. They were holy, they were pure, but they did not have everlasting life. And the idea was they needed to pass this test, similar to, say, Jesus' test in the wilderness, before God then granted them eternal life. I realize it's a bit of speculation, but it does make sense. And you might want to think about it more yourself. But be that as it may, what we can say for sure is that in their current state, they're now dying and decaying. They're growing old, they're growing weak, they're growing sick. So to prevent them from eating from the tree of life, what does God do? Look at verse 24. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. 
Now, these cherubim, they're a type of angel. Did you know there are different types of angels in the Bible? They come in various shapes, various sizes. There are cherubim, there are seraphim, there are angels, there are archangels, there are angels that look like humans, angels that look like fantastic beasts. Demons are even a type of angel. So all varieties of angels. And these cherubim here, we don't know exactly what they look like, but they're actually found all throughout the Bible. We know that they had wings and that at least sometimes they looked like humans. But very important for our purposes is this. Images of the cherubim were on top of the Ark of the Covenant, and they were embroidered into the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place in the temple. Okay, remember that detail for later. In addition to the cherubim, what also prevents them from getting to this tree? A flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, what this sword looked like, we can only imagine. Uh, it's possible that it was sort of like this gigantic saw blade that went all, all around the perimeter of the garden uh, that would just cut people to ribbons if they came near it. So an army of fantastic angels, this gigantic flaming sword, the point's pretty clear. Under no circumstances may Adam and Eve or any of their descendants come near the garden to eat from the tree of life. Now, all of this begs the question, Why? I mean, wouldn't it have been loving to let Adam and Eve eat this fruit and live forever? I mean, that's how we think. This desire to live forever, this is what it, it drove the conquistadors to look for the fountain of life down in Florida. And it's what drives our culture's obsession today with Botox and vitamins and hair dye. We're terrified of death. We want to live forever. So why wouldn't it have been loving for God to let Adam and Eve eat from this tree? Well, this is stuff for us to really comprehend, but realize that if they had eaten in their fallen condition, that would have been positively hateful. It would have been disaster. They're dying. They're decaying. Imagine living in that state forever. I mean, just imagine the aging process going on forever. Centuries upon centuries upon centuries of viruses, cancers, injuries. Imagine your muscles continually atrophying, your mind continually degenerating, broken bones... Before long, we're going to just be these awful, decaying, rotting zombies with no hope of that coming to an end. That's what would have happened to Adam and Eve had they eaten from the tree of life in their fallen state. Now, somebody else might wonder, why didn't God just destroy this tree? I mean, he can send fire down from heaven to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Why didn't he do that here? Why leave it there in the garden and yet make it impossible for people to get to? Well, I think it all goes back to that promise in Genesis 3.15. It's because a few thousand years later, the seed is coming. Jesus would be born. And this is how you've got to imagine Jesus' work in part. On the cross, it's as if Jesus walks into that flaming sword. It's as if on the cross, Jesus is attacked by these angels. And yet he quenches that flaming sword. He disarms those angels so that now the way to the tree of life is open to those who believe. You'll remember that I mentioned earlier that the cherubim were embroidered on the veil, separating the holy place from the most holy place. Remember that? If you remember the gospel accounts, what was one of the things that took place the very moment that Jesus died? Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. And this is why if we go to the very last book of the Bible, Revelation, what is something that reappears in the new heavens and the new earth? The tree of life. Listen to Revelation 22.1. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the city. 
and also the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. Some people have described it this way. The Bible really is centered around trees. Tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Tree of life in the new heavens and the new earth. And what's there right in the center? The cursed tree that Jesus dies on, enabling us to get back to the tree of life. For Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of life again in their fallen condition, it would have been a disaster. We would have continued in this fallen state decaying and dying forever. So out of love, God did something far, far better. He gave us a Savior, a Savior who walked into death for us and conquered it. Now the way is open. Now you can have eternal life. Now you can eat from that tree through trusting in Jesus, the one who crushed the serpent's head. And just like Jesus was raised from the dead three days after his death, for those of us who believe, we too will be raised to walk in newness of life. For those of us who have trusted in Jesus, we will be resurrected and resurrected, praise God, not in these fallen, decaying, dying bodies, but in perfected, glorified, perfect bodies that will never experience any of the consequences of sin. Anybody looking forward to that? I sure am. What all of this means is that for the believer, death has an entirely different meaning. For the believer in Jesus, death is not the sad ending of everything, but the beginning of heavenly life, of glorified life. Death is not really the conclusion of your existence, but just the gateway into that heavenly life where Jesus has gone before us. It's the doorway into heaven and all that awaits us there. Can you see why I say we should see in these verses the mercy of the believer's death? I'd encourage you to train yourself to look at death this way. If you're a believer in Jesus, you've got to train yourself to look at death this way. If your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, train yourself to look at death as the release from this sin-cursed world. Let's pray for that for ourselves. Pray for that for one another. And if you're ever privileged to be there at the bedside of a dying believer, hold their hand and remind them of this perspective as they pass into eternity. It'll make all the difference. One last thought on this before we conclude. I would be remiss, I would probably be immoral if I did not emphasize that for the non-Christian, death is not a merciful release, but the beginning of judgment. For all those who have not turned from their sins and cast themselves on Jesus, for all of those who have not embraced him with this audacious faith that I talked about earlier, death is not a blessed escape, but a terrifying entrance into the eternal fire. It was Jesus who said in Matthew 25, 30, Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, a verse very applicable to a pandemic, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. If you're here today and you are not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, we're delighted you're here. Sincerely, thank you for coming. You're always welcome to be with us. In fact, there's nowhere we'd rather you be, 1045 on a Sunday morning, than here with us, listening to God's Word. I encourage you to come every Sunday, maybe get some free coffee, free donut holes if we've got any, make some new friends, and perhaps you'll learn more about what it means to follow Jesus. But if you're here today and you are not a Christian, I ask you, are you afraid of death? Really, are you afraid of death? We all seem to have this, and almost naturally so. But why is it? Why do we fear death like we do? I mean, if death were simply the cessation of our existence, it would be more like going to sleep. 
I mean, most of us don't fear going to sleep at the end of a day, but all of us innately, instinctively fear death. Now, why is that? Well, the Bible would tell us the reason we fear death is because deep down we understand more than we realize. Deep down we understand more than we realize. And deep down we know that we are sinners. We know that we have rejected God's laws. We know that we have rejected God's authority. And what's more, deep down we know that a judgment day is coming, a judgment that we're not ready for. And that's why we are scared of death. But here now the glorious news of the Christian gospel. And this is good news you're not going to find anywhere else. Even in our fallen, rebellious, sinful state, God loved us. And in his great love, he acted himself, becoming incarnate. Jesus is the eternal Son of God, always with the Father, always with the Son. And yet he was born as a baby to the Virgin Mary. He's that descendant of Eve who took on flesh. And Jesus obeyed God perfectly. Where Adam sinned and disobeyed, Jesus passed the test. And when Jesus died on the cross, he took the wrath of God deserved by sinners upon himself. Do you understand? That's why Jesus is dying, not just as an example of good works to follow, but literally bearing the judgment our sins deserve. Again, it's as if he walked into that flaming sword for us. Three days later, God raised Jesus back from the dead, demonstrating that our hope is not in vain. And now God is calling you. He's calling you right now. Turn from your sins. Embrace Jesus. Be made right with me. Repent of your sins. Turn from your sins. Embrace the Lord Jesus and be forgiven of all of your sins and made right with your Creator. That is what's being offered to you right now. This is the gospel message that's totally unique to biblical Christianity. That you can be forgiven of all of your sins, all your shame covered, your guilt taken away, reconciled to your Creator forever if you'll embrace Jesus with that audacious faith. So in conclusion, I beg you, trust Jesus now. Trust Jesus now. Jesus is the only hope, man or woman, boy or girl, any of us have to be made right with our God. It's the only way to eat from that tree of life, to be resurrected and given glorified bodies. To trust Jesus now. So if you've never committed yourself, body and soul, to the Lord Jesus, do it right now, right now as I'm looking at you. You don't need to go through any special rituals or walk the aisle. I mean, you're free to do that if you want, I guess. But believe on the Lord Jesus. Stake your hopes on him. Embrace his loving leadership and be made right with God right now. Trust Jesus now. And as always, if any of you would like to discuss any of this further, need clarification on something that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you or pray for you, talk to me after the service. I'll be at the front door to greet people on the way out. But trust Jesus today and today eat from that tree of life. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, thank you so much for your word, for the joy of studying it. Lord, your word is amazing and we love it. Please work in our hearts. Give us greater faith in Jesus, reliance on his work. Help us to see his righteousness covering us. We do pray for any in the hearing of my voice who don't yet know the Lord Jesus. Uh, work in their hearts. Give them eyes to see. Take away their loincloths of fig leaves and cover them with Jesus' blood. Have mercy on them. Help us now, Lord, as we sing, to sing out of hearts of joy and gratitude. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen.